Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Today's guest is Chicago Tribune investigative reporter Ray Long. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's experienced at the state capitol, city hall, courts, and the county beats as well. Thanks for joining me today, Ray. Great to be here, Elizabeth. Thank you. Let's start with your history. Tell me a little bit about yourself from where you were born and what led you to Springfield. I was born in the small town of Winchester, Illinois, just about 30 miles west of Jacksonville, Illinois. And one of the big trips that I took with my family would be going over to Springfield. And we'd drive that two lane road over there to Springfield when I was a little kid and I'd stand on the little hump in the back seat of the car and lean over the front seat and I'd try to be the first one to see the Capitol and spy what was the Capitol before anybody else in the car. Over the years, I went to school and I went to a public affairs reporting program at then Sangamon State University, now the University of Illinois at Springfield. Then I got hooked on this idea of covering state government. The public affairs reporting program is a graduate program that allows kids to get a chance to go in and actually write stories on this incredible beat called the state government and covering the legislature and all that kind of stuff. So I went there. I worked for the Alton Telegraph for six months covering the press, working as a full-time reporter, more or less, with lots of supervision, obviously. And then I left there and went to the Peoria Journal Star, was a copy editor for a little while, switched over to reporting, covered the UAW cat strike in 81, 82 that lasted 205 days. I guess they thought I knew what I was doing, so they kept me on as a reporter. And then they sent me back down to Springfield where I worked for the Peoria paper. And after that, I moved up to Chicago, worked for the Chicago Sun-Times, covered Cook County beat and City Hall beat and state government. I'd parachute back down to Springfield whenever I could. And then my wife got a job at Illinois Issues Magazine, and she was based in Springfield. So I grabbed a job with AP covering the Capitol beat again, worked there for about three years. And then a job popped open at the Chicago Tribune. I snagged that and worked there for 17 or 18 years. And then I said, you know, I've been covering all these things like Blagojevich's problems and George Ryan's problems. And I've been doing a lot of investigations. Why don't you bring me up to Chicago full time for investigations? That's what I was doing. So during that time that I was in the Capitol and even now where I do a lot of political investigations, I still think back to that time that I was riding over in the car trying to spot the Capitol first. Now I'm just trying to spot what's going in, going on over there at the Capitol first. So there's a little bit of a circular pattern there too. When you look back at your memories and seeing the Capitol come into sight, what is your earliest political memory that you have? It's not state, but it's the Kennedy assassination is the first big thing that happened when I was a kid and my babysitter was there while I, I was still not in school. And, and my dad came home in the middle of the day, said he'd just been to the bank and heard that the president was shot. So we all turned on the TV and the babysitter was crying and my dad was upset and it was a traumatic moment. After that, I guess Watergate had an impact on me. I enjoyed the idea of digging out the truth like Woodward and Bernstein and trying to 
get to the bottom of things. And it was just a great set of investigations that they did there. And that, that kind of inspired me to take journalism seriously. So I dabbled in radio over at Eastern Illinois University and then got taken some print classes and kind of like that. And eventually that's where I headed. I guess those are the big political moments in my youth. And then I started covering it myself. And it's been quite a ride. You touched on this, but your bio says you, quote, covered two governors who went to prison and a state senator who went to the White House. Did those governors and eventual president consider you an ally? Were you a foe? I know that there's been a contentious relationship with both of those positions and the media, but how did your relationship fare? You got to know when to work them as just somebody you're trying to get information from and somebody then when you're really going after them hard to get information that you've got and they're trying not to give it to you and when they're trying to not answer your questions and you can get into shouting matches. I can remember both of those governors, I shouted questions at them repeatedly to try to get answers and Sometimes they'd answer and sometimes they wouldn't. And there were other times that I'd just be talking to them about, you know, what was this legislative strategy? And they would tell me about that, too. But it was not a friendship. I just am a straight news guy and I just write this news straight. I don't put an in on it. And that's how I handled the beat. If the story just needed pure information, I could get pure information. If the story needed hard hitting reporting, I could do hard hitting, hard edge reporting often did with those two guys. For a second, let's talk about the fact that the Chicago Tribune has been your home for more than two decades. Prior to that, you were at the Chicago Sun-Times. There is a much different culture at both of those. How would you describe the differences? The Sun-Times is more of, at least when I was there, was more of a reporter-driven paper. So you could come up with an idea and bang, you get the green light almost instantly. The Tribune culture is slower. I mean, I think it's really changed an awful lot in the last few years so that we respond much quicker. We are more deadline oriented. And of course, the Internet has caused us to be even more so all the time. So we're often in the game and often leading in breaking stories, etc. But a lot of times the culture was kind of like the Sun-Times would be a PT boat where they could swing their guns around real fast. And the Tribune had like frozen stationary guns and they would have to move the entire battleship to aim, <laughs> take aim. But once they started firing, it was full scale. But that wasn't always the case. I mean, the beats are tremendously competitive, the government beats, especially city hall, federal courts, state government. Those are like knockdown drag outs every day. So you're on 24-7 with those. And the culture has changed at the Tribune tremendously since I've been there. And right now we're in there swinging and punching fast and furiously every day. Illinois has a reputation of corruption. We like Illinois because of all of the culture of what happens, but the scandals also make national headlines. So let's talk about some of the things you've covered. The tollway scandal, the impeachment hearings of the Illinois Supreme Court justice, election funding, the casino stories that go on and on. 
What was the hardest to cover, but yet the most rewarding because you were able to uncover the truth? There's no doubt that George Ryan and Rod Blagojevich stories were were very tough to cover because there was always some scam we had to try to dig into and try to find. And we depended on a lot of gumshoe, if you will, going out knocking on doors, working the phones like crazy, lots of crazy hours, et cetera. But eventually those paid off in a way that we had been able to write stories that needed to be written and people needed to know about things. And eventually both of those guys went to prison. So when we wrote about George Ryan, a Republican, Republicans thought we were Democrats. When we wrote about Rod Blagojevich, a Democrat, the Democrats thought we were Republicans. I mean, we just wrote it straight and let the path to the story be the truth. Now, let's talk about the Pulitzer Prize finalists. Us mere mortals have no idea the process of what it takes to even be considered for that. Can you walk me through the process and what the stories were about? Both of those were team efforts. One was involving drugs and prescription drugs, not just your street drugs. But in fact, we were looking at what drugs interacted and how well people were being informed about that. Another one of my partners, Sam Rowe, had gone to Columbia University in New York and worked with some scientists there and studied, you know, reams and reams and gigabytes of data that would have helped identify some drugs that actually caused different heart rates and rhythms to happen and discovered some things as a result of that. Another partner in the stories went to look at a lot of the things that happen to people when there are bad drug interactions and, you know, people have rashes or go blind or in some cases, the interactions can be fatal. So when I came into the story, the idea was to go to the drug stores to find out how many pharmacists will catch really difficult or fatal interactions that we would go up with two prescriptions and they are known to be interactive. They are known to be bad or fatal, or they could make your birth control not work because it was interacting. So it weakened the effectiveness. So we had that range. Most of them would make you real sick or could kill you if you took them together. We went to 255 drugstores, big chains, independents, etc. And we found that 52% of the time, the pharmacist filled those drugs that could kill you without even saying anything about it. No warning. It was called filled without warning. And so that took us, you know, over a year to do. And eventually state regulations were changed. We found out some of the problems were that the pharmacists are overworked. And I think they're probably still overworked. But now you can go to for example, Walgreens, and you'll see a sign or when you call them on the telephone, you'll hear, okay, the pharmacist is going to be gone taking a break from X time to X time in the afternoon and X time to X time at night so that they are not actually working all day, standing on their feet without a break, which was the case in many of the pharmacies. And how would you like to be the person getting your prescription filled when your pharmacist has been working 11 and a half hours, hasn't even taken a bathroom break, has just been shoveling 
like an assembly line, like Lucy and the Chocolate Factory, if you can imagine. There were a lot of changes made at the state level. There was legislation introduced. There was some passed. There was some that was a lot tougher to try to limit the number of prescriptions that some of these folks would be moving because some of these pharmacists move three or 400 prescriptions a day. And the reality is that they don't have a lot of time to double check even with their computer system, they don't have a lot of time. And a lot of times the computers flag almost anything just because of liability reasons, et cetera. And so they get flag fatigue and they just push something on through. As a result, that's why you're going to end up with some of these people who don't warn you about failing now. Hopefully it's better. So that's one thing that you asked about, things that were rewarding. That was a rewarding story. The other in which I was a Pulitzer finalist was with another partner named Jason Grotto, who had done a deep, deep, deep dive into the property tax system in Cook County and concluded basically that the rich were getting more breaks percentage-wise than the poor, and the poor were paying more than they should percentage-wise compared to the rich. And I was brought in to do the political angle, and you may have heard about over the years, they have something called the Shackman Decree up here, which is an anti-patronage deal. And the assessor at the time was named Joe Berrios, and he had accumulated a thick file in the federal courthouse that nobody had really mined. And I got in and dug through that and found all these different political connections that made you wonder whether they were trying to fill the job with friends or whether they were trying to actually get the best person hired at for the job. There were a lot of questions about that. They had an independent investigator on their staff and federal monitor and independent investigator eventually got fired by Berrios because she was pushing back so hard. And one of the good government types, a person named Cindy Canary, who had long been with the Illinois campaign for political reform and also had been on a task force that oversaw ethics reforms under Mayor Rahm Emanuel called her up because of her expertise. And she she said, you know, the whole idea of how they're doing the hiring raises questions about how they are doing their property tax assessments. It's kind of like garbage in, garbage out. And so that was how we were involved in putting together Pulitzer finalists, where that was for local government. The first one was public service. Both of those are rewarding stories because they had some impact. Let's talk about your book, The House That Madigan Built, The Record Run of Illinois' Velvet Hammer. You've covered Madigan since 1981. You've done years of research. You've done interviews for this book on the, quote, longest serving leader of any state or federal legislative body. What got you thinking, you know what, I've been covering this man for so long, let me write about him. Two things actually came together very fortuitously, or maybe I'm blessed about it, but the reality was I was thinking all this time, if anybody should have a book written about him, it should be Mike Madigan because of the scope of his power, the breadth of his power, and the full extent of the impact of what he does. And then the University of Illinois Press actually sent me an email one day. Danny Nessett, the editor-in-chief, sent me an email and said, do you want to write a book about Madigan? And I'm like, 
Yeah. So it really, really all came together and I was just thrilled to do it. Of course, it's a lot of hard work and a lot of research, but it was also a lot of things that I leaned on from my years of covering him day to day. I covered him day to day for probably over a quarter of a century when you count all the different times I'd been on that beat full time in Springfield. And so I had a lot of knowledge about it. One of the toughest things, so Elizabeth was deciding what to leave out because the guy's been around for 50 years. He was a legislative leader for 40 years. He was a speaker for 36 years. As you noted, he was the longest serving head of any legislative body in history. So this is a guy who just cried out for a book. And fortunately, the U of I also was thinking that, U of I Press, and Danny Nissett's the one who put it in motion. You mentioned, quote, what did the speaker think, end quote. Anybody in the state looked to Mike Madigan to make decisions. It loomed over every major issue. What issue was Mike Madigan most passionate about as speaker? That's a great question. And the answer really is that he was not one to be set on an ideological meter. Over the years, he changed. He came out of a Southwest side Irish Catholic enclave and really started out as a conservative Democrat. But over the years, we saw that he ended up supporting gay marriage. He ended up supporting the death penalty. He ended up pushing for broader abortion rights, uh, supporting at least broader abortion rights. What came about was that he realized that to get done what he wanted to get done was that he had to remain speaker. And so he did. That was like number one, people who are close to him, people who are around him, people who have covered him and have asked him and pressed him. And that is the number one thing. Be speaker, hold on to the speakership. As far as other things that he was passionate about, he supported Chicago institutions. He supported things like the White Sox uh, staying in town. And he also was very interested in making sure that not only his fellow lawmakers knew, but that the governor knew that the General Assembly was a co-equal branch of government, that they weren't going to be serfs in the legislature. They were going to be people who had an equal voice in the process of putting together legislation and making policy. How many of his decisions would you estimate were influenced by his relationship with his daughter, Lisa Madigan? Oh, gosh. Whenever she had legislation that was moving through, he'd definitely be supportive of that. But I think that he let her do her thing and she did her thing in somewhat of an independent decision-making process. Now, there was crossover, there's no doubt about it, especially with politics. A lot of Speaker Madigan's people would be helpful or be advisors to Attorney General Lisa Madigan. But they went separate ways on different opinions. Even when she jumped in as a state senator, she ran in a primary against Bruce Farley, who was a longtime Madigan, Speaker Madigan ally, 
and he had moved to the Senate and he had been indicted on corruption and she was in his district and she ran against him. And once she got in, the speaker was fully four square behind her. And a similar pattern happened with the attorney general. Once she decided to go for attorney general, he was somewhat hesitant at the beginning. But once he got in, it was four square, fully, fully, fully behind her. I understand this next question is a loaded question, and you will get different answers no matter who you ask. Was it a good thing or a bad thing to have a consistent speaker in the Illinois House for 40 years? It's a great question. There's probably not a total yes or no, good or bad. But one thing that you could count on Madigan for was that he was usually the adult in the room. And so if lawmakers or the governors wanted to go into some kind of crazy idea or get out of control in spending like Blagojevich tried to do, then Madigan could put his foot down and stop it. And even if Blagojevich tried to outmaneuver Madigan, Madigan could align himself with Republicans if he had to. And he did sometimes to try to stop Blagojevich from changing tax structures or overspending or doing some other kinds of things that really crossed constitutional boundaries. And Madigan could be counted on to stand up to him. Same thing with Bruce Rauner, too. Illinois is a state, for example, that had long ago in the 1980s taken on issues like right to work, whether we should be a right to work state or allow for more union tilted thinking and union tilted laws. That was beaten back actually in the early 80s when I was first there in Springfield covering him. But Rauner came in, Bruce Rauner, a Republican, came in and really wanted to turn Illinois into a Wisconsin style of right to work state of mind. And it just could not happen. There was an incredible fight between Rauner and Madigan. And Rauner tried to use the budget to change the ideology of the state, and Madigan wouldn't have anything to do with it. He stood up to Rauner and stood up for his ideology, and uh, union backing, of course, came his way. And it's kind of interesting because Madigan had actually fought to roll back the size of pensions of state workers who were represented heavily by unions. And he pushed through legislation, but that eventually got tossed by the Illinois Supreme Court. But shortly after that, during the rounder time, the unions came back to him because he was the one standing up for their rights. And rounder could not work with Madigan because they were so ideologically different. Did Mike Madigan have a light side? Did he ever let his guard down? He could actually be funny. You know, when you spend a lot of time with people, and I spent off and on 40 years covering the guy, there could be light moments and he could get a kick out of something that would be usually in the political realm, some kind of of joke, you know, ask Scott Walker came down to Springfield one time and was giving a talk because Republicans down in Springfield were enamored with how Scott Walker was getting things done in Wisconsin. And he had a whole different set of lawmakers, you know, Republicans were leading 
the state and their legislature. I asked Madigan what his thoughts were about Walker, and he joked about Dan Walker, who was a guy that he had collided with and was governor of Illinois back in the early 70s. And there were not a lot of knee-slapping moments with with, uh, the speaker, but he could be a funny guy and he could have funny responses too. I have two questions for you. These are the I have to ask questions. The first one, and I will go first, the person in Chicago media or Illinois who I thought was the rudest and who seemed to dislike the media the most was Richard Daly, the son. Who would you say was the rudest as a member of the media? I covered Rich Daly. He could swing back and it's a real scrum, just trying to get your questions in every day. But he did come out and let you ask the questions. And so you may see other state officials, including the current crew with Pritzker, et cetera, if they have a tough story or a tough question, they may suddenly cut it off. And Daly could cut it off a few times too, or his aides would, but he came out and took tough questions. And so sometimes he gave tough answers right back. And sometimes he made it personal, but mostly he could just take hard swings and spoke from the gut. So I don't have the same kind of impression that he was the rudest of all the politicians that have run up against. Fair enough. And final question I have to ask, who is your dream interview? Not necessarily in the state of Illinois, anywhere from musicians to actors to politicians. Well, Elizabeth S., I think. This is probably the the most important interview I've ever had here. So Clearly, but <laughs> let's say you could sit down and you could interview anyone from Howard Stern to Paul McCartney. Who would you want to interview or be interviewed by? You know, I think right now at this time, it would have to be Putin from Russia to know what in the world he is thinking and why he is going on this terrible campaign that has invaded Ukraine. There have to be answers to what he's doing, and he's not giving us straight answers right now. So I would like to sit down and try to have unlimited time to interrogate him and try to figure out what is what here in the world. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Ray Long, thank you so much for your time today. Good to be here, Elizabeth. 